As a kid, I had a tank Lego kit. Well, it was a knockoff Lego kit, but I'll call it a Lego kit. I followed the directions meticulously, building it brick by brick. And construction stopped for some unfortunate event, like eating a meal or going to bed or some other, some other thing that I had to go to. I left the tank in my room with the instructions left open to the page where I had just left off. And when I came back to it later, I found out that a well-intentioned sibling of mine, who will be nameless, tried to finish it for me without the instructions. That was a big deal for me. It was my tank. I didn't give him permission to do it, and so I threw a fit. He messed it up, and now I had to take it apart brick by brick so that I could start from the very beginning because I don't know what he did, and I didn't even know if I had all of the bricks left. I never did finish that tank. Why? Because I wasn't up for the effort that it took to clear the rubble and rebuild. Putting a Lego kit together isn't that big of a deal. It's nothing like trying to rebuild a city, which was the task that these Jews were tasked with. They had started with the temple, but they stopped building the temple so they could build their homes. Now their homes are built and they're sitting relatively comfortable in their own homes, and the temple remains uncompleted. Eventually, that work resumed. But even then, they faced opposition. How could they ensure that the work that they did would last? And how could they know that it wouldn't be undone by their enemies? The temple would be vulnerable and exposed. How could they protect it? This isn't just a hypothetical protection. No, this was something that was necessary for them. They were faced with a very real threat. They had already experienced intimidation by the locals who were opposed to the reconstruction. And they'd made it clear that they didn't want these exiles back. Zechariah's vision in chapter 2 was given to quell their qualms. Zechariah sees a man later identified as an angel who's taking measurements of Jerusalem. He's taking measurements so he knows how big this wall has to be so they have enough material. And as the vision unfolds, Zechariah finds out that the angel was measuring the city for the purposes of rebuilding the walls. Another angel appears to tell the first angel, that's not necessary. You don't need to do that. The city won't be needing any walls for a number of reasons. While walls offer an amount of protection, they also keep people in. They delineate who's inside and who is outside. He explains in verse 4 that the number of people and the number of cattle that will be returning to the city are going to be too great for the walls. Any walls you build are going to be bursting at the seams, so you don't need to build walls. And at the time, there's only about 42,000 people that are in the city. That's not a whole lot, but there are many that were more that were to be coming back. It seemed like a long shot for them. God, what do you mean that this, build, this city is going to be bursting at its seams? We've had a hard enough time trying to build this temple. And the Jews were given full permission, full blessing and protection by the king, by their king, the king of Babylon, to return home. Many chose to stay put. Why would they choose to stay put? They're given permission, they're given money, they're given protection to go back to their homes and to rebuild. Josephus, a Jewish historian from the first century, described the people's hesitancy to return home because, as he says, they were not willing to leave their possessions. 
They weren't willing to leave their possessions. They built homes in Babylon. They'd been there for 70 years. They planted vineyards. They were reaping its harvest. They had established roots in their communities. Why would they want to uproot everything to start over again? They had a good life in Babylon. Why leave? Compelling reason is given in verse 5. Well, it should have been a compelling reason. It was the same reason why they wouldn't be needing a wall. Because the Lord would be their protector. Described as a wall of fire around them. And the Lord continues on in the end of the verse saying, I will be the glory in her midst. And that last clause should have been enough to have people running to Jerusalem, awaiting the arrival of God's glory. Unfortunately, that wasn't the case. Many people still stayed in Babylon, content to find protection underneath their king, content to be surrounded by their possessions and everything else that they had built up for themselves. Why leave? Yeah, we've got the glory of the Lord that will someday be there in Jerusalem, but don't you see the glory that I'm living in right now? It's nice. Why should I leave and start everything all over again? How easy it is for the cares of this world to keep us back from the gracious provision of God. That happens in a number of ways, and it happens on all different levels. We find ways to comfort ourselves with the facade of protection and security we obtain for ourselves medically. We obtain for ourselves financially, materially, even emotionally and relationally. And yes, we should also mention spiritually too. We hide behind external connections to the Lord or point to our religious resumes demanding that God owes us something, that we're entitled to God's providence for some reason. These Jews were given the opportunity to go back to Jerusalem, to contribute some, to something greater than themselves, to rebuild God's kingdom rather than focusing on their own kingdoms. The Lord was going to rebuild Jerusalem. The Lord was going to protect her and he would be her glory. And sadly, many passed on the opportunity. Still, the Lord wanted to call his people back to himself, calling them to find their safety and their security in him and in him alone. And in verses 6 and 7, he calls the people to flee from the north, to flee from Babylon. But why should they? Again, why should they leave their perfectly good and safe, comfortable homes? The presence of God's goodness and favor isn't reason enough. Perhaps fleeing from his judgment would be enough to get them to move. The Lord says he's going to bring judgment upon the Babylonians. He'll do something as simple as waving his hands, and just like that, the Babylonians will be handed over to their enemies. They would be plundered by their own slaves. The Lord will be handing the Babylonians over to their enemies. Verse 8 explains why the Lord is going to do this. He says, because the people, my people, are the apple of my eye. In other words, saying this, the Babylonians picked on the wrong people. Picture a kid who's just been given a wonderful treasure. A wonderful treasure that's the greatest thing in the world, so much so that as he holds this in his hands, he says, this is the best day ever because I have this thing. And he stares at it, inspects it, looks at every nook and cranny of this thing, staring intently at his precious treasure, holding it in his hands. It's his. And you see the joy exuding from his face. He's holding a priceless, precious treasure. Now picture 
this child, as someone suddenly comes, rips that treasure from his hands, and smashes it to bits. The child is no longer smiling, is he? The child is no longer happy. This went from the best day in the world to the worst day ever. Now picture that child not as a child, but as instead the creator of the universe who has chosen his people to be a reflection to the world, to draw others to himself. And that object that is being ripped apart and smashed to bits isn't some inanimate toy or treasure, but precious, eternal human souls. And they are brutalized with no respect for human life. No recognition that they are precious. No recognition that they belong to God. And you can begin to get a sense of the holy anger and judgment of the Lord that the Lord is about to unleash upon these Babylonians for the way they've handled his people, the apple of his eye. You don't afflict the apple of God's eye. The Babylonians did, and it was time for them to pay for it. The prophets had warned of God's judgment in no uncertain terms. Open up to any the book of the prophets, and you will find a message of judgment for God's people because they were not listening to him. And now it was time for the people who judged God's people to be judged themselves. He had raised up the Assyrians and the Babylonians to judge his own people. Now he's raising up another country, another country who will not be bound to the Lord's mercy, but bound to their own mercy, which as anyone who's familiar with war knows, the mercy of an enemy isn't so merciful, is it? Even if there's a Geneva Code to keep people from treating people inhumanely, that doesn't stop people in a time of war. It's time to flee Babylon, to run to Jerusalem where the Lord's glory dwells and where he is their protection. Because the Lord has promised retribution for those who have mistreated his people. Is this message going to be enough to get people to move? Is this message enough to get us to move as well? Zechariah's message was a message of joy for God's people. He calls them to sing for joy in verse 10. He says that the Lord is coming. The Lord is going to return. Not just to observe the troops and boost their morale, but to dwell among them. The prophet Ezekiel had detailed before that the Lord had left the temple in Jerusalem. Ultimately leaving God's people who had abandoned the Lord to their own gods that they clung to for protection. Gods who were no gods, gods who could offer them no protection, only a facade of protection. And here the Lord promises to dwell again among them, in their midst, and not only in their midst, but as verse 11 explains, that as he dwells in their midst, many nations will see it, and many nations would join themselves to the Lord. There isn't going to be this wall keeping people out. The Lord will be on full display as his glory is revealed, drawing people from all nations to himself to be his people. The fulfillment of Jerusalem bursting at the seams was coming. God had promised it here. God is calling out to holy people from every tribe, from every tongue, from every nation. It wouldn't be a homogenous group. They wouldn't all look the same. But they would all be Abraham's descendants. Heirs according to the promise of God. It seemed too good to be true. The temple still hadn't been completed. So how could the Lord dwell with these people? Why would any of the nations come and join themselves to this ragtag bunch of defeated exiles? 
God present, God's presence wasn't to be sought in a reconstructed temple, but God's presence was to be sought in the one who would come to that reconstructed temple. That Messiah whose birth we celebrated yesterday and this weekend. The glory and dwelling of God among men Zechariah prophesied about found a fulfillment in the birth of Christ. As John recalls it in his gospel, the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we saw his glory. As Zechariah says, the glory of the Lord will dwell in their midst. And there in this Christ child is the glory of God dwelling in their midst. God is fulfilling his prophecy. This Christmas season, we reflect on God's glory revealed. On the birth of Emmanuel, God with us. And we marvel at the miracle of Christ's incarnation as Jesus, God himself, took on flesh. The fullness of God in bodily form came to dwell among man. Veiled in flesh, the Godhead see, as a hymn writer described it. Let's pause for a moment of reflection here. The fullness of God's glory came to dwell in Christ. And are we running to see him in the manger? Are we running to see Christ? Or is it really not that big of a deal? Are there more important things going on? Jesus came to seek and to save the lost, regardless of ethnic, economic, or religious status. To the Pharisees, the Samaritans, the fishermen, the tax collectors, and even the prostitutes, Gentiles, and yes, even the dead, he brought back to life, calling people to himself. Jesus called people from all walks of life to salvation. And he continues to do this work to this day, as the Lord is constructing a new temple in which he dwells, One that's made not with human hands and stone, but one that's made of living stones, made up of believers from all walks of life, from all denominations, from every tribe, every tongue, every nation. We call it the Holy Christian Church. That's what we just confessed our belief in as we confessed the Apostles' Creed. This church provides safety for sinners looking for redemption. This church provides safety for sinners who are cut to the heart and guilt-ridden over their sin, wondering, what can I do? Woe is me, for I am undone. I am a man of an unclean mouth, unclean heart, unclean thoughts, unclean actions. That security and protection comes only in connection with Christ, the one who had accomplished peace with God on your behalf, on our behalf, on my behalf. We need his protection more than anything else. Oh, how we need that protection more than anything else. When you think of the retribution that comes from touching the apple of God's eye, and then you think of the many times that we have hurt those whom God has loved, even hurting those whom we love as well, but those whom God loves by our actions, by our inactions, by our words by our neglect, our slandering, our putting down, or harming people in other ways. It's utterly terrifying. We need a refuge. We need a safe place to hide behind. And that's not to be constructed by our own hands, our own ideas, our own actions. That's only to be found in Christ and his blood and the forgiveness that he has come to bring for you. Christ was born to die to take God's wrath in your stead. But Christ was also born to dwell with us. And Jesus dwells with us now 
In a certain sense, that's it, and we can't look around and see Christ in the flesh among us here today. We don't physically see him as he is. We don't see the nations joining themselves to Christ. And our congregation, even our congregation here, may remain the same size. It may even shrink. But the city of God continues to grow and expand. And it expands here in this area as Christ dwells within us and as Christ lives in us both collectively as a congregation and individually as believers. But it also grows as the word of God continues to go forth and as we live lives of obedience to his word. On the one hand, we can always sense that there's more that we could and should be doing. And on the other hand, we can rest in the fact that God is at work in us and through us as we are united to Christ and as Christ lives in you. That's the hope of glory, God dwelling in us. It's a hope of glory we experience now, but there is a hope of glory that is to come that we look forward to with anticipation. The Lord is dwelling in our midst. The Lord is rebuilding his holy temple, and we look forward to the coming new Jerusalem without walls, protected by God, made ready, as John says in Revelation, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. And what a glorious day that will be. What a day that will be for the bride. On the other hand, it's going to be a tragic day for those who afflicted his people and for those who have rejected the Savior. For those who continue to find protection and security and health and wellness in someone else other than Christ. For those who seek protection and salvation from the other gods, man-made gods, our own ideas, Gods who are, in fact, not gods. The returning king will bring retribution on all of his enemies. Christ is rebuilding a people for himself out of the rubble of our lives, a holy and royal people. Security and salvation is to be found in his precious blood, which has been poured out for you and for me. And he has dealt with our enemies. He has dealt with the devil, with our own sin, He's dealt with the world that is against us. And one day, once the building is complete, Christ will come again. And the Lord God will dwell among men. This is what we live for. This is what we work for. And it's Christ and his word and his glory and his dwelling presence among us where we find our encouragement for each and every day as the world seeks to discourage us in every way. The Lord is in our midst. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word and for its truth. Lord, we thank you that you are a God who is dwelling among us today, a God who has promised to come back again and to dwell among us in your full glory. Lord, where we will be your people and you will be our God, we will see you as you are and we too will be changed. Change in a moment to be the people that you have created us to be, that you have called us to be. And God, we will see who you have created us to be, as we really are, as you see us. Father, we pray that you would keep us faithful to the tasks at hand that you have called us to, as we seek to build your kingdom here in our midst, in our homes, in our families, Lord, in our communities. Keep us faithful to that task. Encourage us in our work, Lord. We pray that you would help us to always know that you are in our midst, Lord, that you are calling us to yourself. 
and that it is you and you alone who brings us to yourself. You and you alone who cleanses us and makes us holy and righteous. And Lord, it's you who will be coming back again. We thank you for your protection. We thank you for your salvation. Lord, we thank you for the encouragement that is found in your word today. All these things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.